Good, good to go? All right. Um, could you put the passage up, please? I will uh, have you stand with me to honor the reading of the word of the Lord. We'll read the, we'll read the passage, then I'll pray over the passage, and we'll begin our exposition of these, these two verses. <clears throat> Today's exposition of Scripture, I'm sure you've noticed by the screen, is just going to be two verses. John chapter 1, verses 50 to 51, which I've entitled, You Shall See the Heavens Opened, of course, quoting this magnificent promise from the Lord Jesus. But I'm going to back up a bit to the top of Jesus' greeting and conversation with Nathaniel, and then read the two verses, of course, that we're going to unpack the truth that it contains today. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under that fig tree, I saw you. And all that that means, if you recall. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Today's verses. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Or you will have this translation as well, which I believe may be even more accurate, a simple statement. Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, you believe. You shall see greater things than these. And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for them. Thank you, folks. You may be seated. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful day, which points to the world to come when the heavens are open once and for all and redeemed humanity is restored to you to see the angels of God ascending and descending, paying court and attending upon Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Thank you for promising us the beatific vision, as the old theologians would say to Nathaniel, to the other disciples, and to all who will truly be your disciples and receive life in your name. Thank you for the truth of this passage, of these words, of he who is the word made flesh. Help us to appropriate this truth in and over our life and live our lives in the light and the power of this truth. We pray for everyone who is watching and listening. Ease their troubles, their pains, their illnesses, their heartaches, their sorrows. Reveal yourself to them, of course, O Lord God, in the way that you know best. We pray for each and every one of them, whoever they may be, wherever they are, about this country and the world over. And of course, we pray for those who are specifically mentioned by name earlier in our service for their healing and for their well-being. But first of all, for the strength and the healing of the soul. First, the health and life of the soul. And as you've taught us in sacred scripture, the physical body follows along the soul. Thank you for this opportunity to meet here to worship you and to proclaim the truth of your word to our community and to the world at large. And we thank you again for those who are watching and listening the world over and trust that one day in eternity we will meet and greet them all physically and in person. And enjoy the fellowship of our brothers and sisters in person forever in your eternal kingdom. May the meditations of all of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God, our rock and our redeemer. You who are one and only hope, and you who are more than hope for one and all. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. So today we 
conclude chapter 1. And this last segment of chapter 1, which we traditionally call the calling of Jesus' disciples. Not all of the 12 are mentioned here, but probably about half of them or so. And so we conclude with this calling of Jesus for his disciples. We conclude, of course, with this wonderful encounter, this calling of the disciple, who will be, of course, the apostle Nathaniel. And as I mentioned to you a week or so before, we, many Bible scholars believe that Nathaniel is the disciple who is referred to as Bartholomew in the other Gospels. And so now Jesus... I hope you remember last week because there was more to last week's passage than what meets the eye. What Jesus is actually saying to Nathaniel, revealing himself to be. After Jesus manifests and displays, I thoroughly believe, his deity and divine attributes in this miraculous manifestation or demonstration of divine attributes before Nathaniel and the other apostles from last week's passage. Those attributes are omniscience and omnipresence. Jesus then goes further. He proceeds to make quite an incredible statement to Nathaniel and to the others who are present. He makes them something of a promise. He offers them something. It's astounding. Something that they will see, something they will encounter, something that they will experience in the future. An experience he offers them if they truly follow him. If they truly become his methetes in the Greek, his disciples, and all that that will mean. It's a very mysterious statement. It's an enigmatic statement, somewhat. And to understand this statement, you have to go back to the Old Testament. Jesus is drawing directly from the Old Testament, from the lives of the patriarchs. He hearkens back to, he alludes to, he refers to a well-known event, what should be a well-known event, in the life of the patriarch Jacob. Jesus is saying, in effect, to Nathaniel and the others, and by extension us, if you think you've seen and encountered the miraculous in me now, just wait. Oh, you're going to see so much more. So much more beyond what you can now imagine. Or as we say in America, pardon me our international folks for using an American expression, you haven't seen anything yet. The best is truly yet to come. Sometimes in studies of John in verses 50 and 51, these two verses, well, sometimes don't get quite the attention that they deserve. Uh, these verses contain really one of the most wonderful things, one of the most breathtaking promises that Jesus ever made to his disciples, to his followers in the Gospels, to all of those, I believe, by extension, who in time will come to follow him. So let's, let's give these verses the attention they deserve, deserve and discover just exactly what Jesus is saying here about himself and his work. I hope by the time we finish today, you'll be glad that we spend a little more time with Nathaniel. In Jesus' calling and greeting of Nathanael. Verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, you believe. Some translations translate it as a question. Do you believe? You shall see greater things than these. So first of all, as you can imagine from what I've said already, there's something of a debate amongst New Testament Greek translators about the original Greek here. The first sentence here that Jesus speaks, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, you believe, or, or do you believe? There's the debate. How should we translate this? Which is the most accurate way to translate it? As a question or as a statement? To make a long story, technical story short, I have frankly been convinced to agree with those who believe that this should probably be translated as a statement instead of a question. I won't argue the question. 
but I believe the original Greek suggests that Jesus is simply making a factual statement. He's not asking Nathaniel a question necessarily. He's simply stating a fact about Nathaniel to Nathaniel. He is saying, because I said to you, basically, that I was there with you and saw you as you were seeking God under that fig tree, you believe. Fact. Statement. Because you have seen, because you have encountered the supernatural, because you've encountered the miraculous power of God in me, you now believe. Because I've manifested these powers, demonstrated these divine attributes, proved to you that I have power and abilities that only God holds. You are convinced. You believe that I am the Messiah. Good. Well done, Nathaniel. You have guessed it right. You believe correctly. I am the promised anointed king of Israel. You see, Jesus, I believe, is just stating a simple fact. And by doing so, he's not rebuking Nathaniel. He's not chiding him. He's not criticizing him at all for being convinced by way of the supernatural. We're being convinced by way of a miracle. Jesus is pleased with his faith. Now, I know a lot of you are saying, oh, if only he would perform a miracle for me, then it would be easier for me to believe. Well, blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they have believed. They're the most blessed of all. But Jesus isn't criticizing Nathaniel. Oh, I have given you this demonstration of divine attributes, so now you believe. I don't think it's, he's criticizing. Just simple fact. You are looking at the word made flesh. The anointed Messiah finally arrived. And you believe. Good. Well done. We're on our way. That's a grand start. The Lord Jesus God is always pleased with someone's faith. With someone's belief. Even if it's the size of that little proverbial mustard seed, right? Scripture states elsewhere, without faith and without belief, it is impossible to believe God. Faith and belief is absolutely indispensable, absolutely essential for a human being's restored relationship with the Creator, Redeemer, God. And let's give Nathaniel a little credit. Oh, he's had a lot of help from the Son of God in the flesh and from the power of the Spirit there. But Nathaniel has, after all, he's taken a huge step of faith in Jesus, hasn't he? Just by way of what he's heard, just by way of what he has encountered in this first meeting with Jesus, those transcendent attributes that Jesus clearly has. So Nathaniel's present belief, yes, of course, it is founded, it is based upon a miracle, upon an act of the supernatural buying in Jesus. And so many believe that Jesus here is making this promise to Nathaniel as a reward for his faith, as a reward for his belief. He's saying, in effect, if you are convinced by this, Nathaniel, that you believe in my true identity, what will you think in the future when I will demonstrate far greater power and abilities than what you have seen and heard just now? Oh, yes, you will see many, many more wonderful things than this. You'll see far greater acts of manifestations of deity in me than this. Yes, the truly, the best is yet to come. Well done, Nathaniel, I believe he's saying. Well done. But you will see and experience greater things than this. If you follow me, if you will become my disciple, and all that that means and all that that details, as a reward for your faith, your devotion in me, the Messiah, the King of Israel, you will see far greater things and realities revealed to you. And I think by extension, he's saying exactly the same thing to you and exactly the same thing to me, exactly the same thing to everyone who hears this gospel. If you follow me, if you become my disciple, and all that that means, and all that I will demand of you, as a reward for your faith, 
your devotion, your belief in me, the anointed one, the promised one, the Messiah, the word made flesh, the king of Israel, you will see far greater things and realities revealed to you in the future. Now to Nathaniel and to those who are present with Jesus at this moment in the first century AD at this meeting, Jesus is saying this to them initially. You will see things that surpass the experiences of the patriarchs in centuries past. You are a very unique and blessed generation to be the generation alive on the earth with the arrival of the Messiah, the Word made flesh. I'm going to show you things greater than what the prophets experienced at the hands of God in the days of the Old Testament, in the days of the Old Covenant. After all, they looked forward to the Messiah's arrival. Now in me, Jesus is implying... The Messiah is here at last. This really is an amazing moment in history, folks. It's important to note here that in this gospel, it's an interesting little detail. Nathaniel, according to John, this gospel, Nathaniel is the very first of Jesus' disciples who's explicitly mentioned as one who is said to believe. Jesus has called several other men. We know who they are. He's called them to follow. Jesus has called these other men to follow him. They are following him. But now it's time for these men, all of them, to really see. To see and believe. To see Jesus for who he is like Nathaniel, And thereby believe. And of course, John is asking us as well. Do you believe? I've told you who he is. In the prologue. He's already demonstrated to you his divine attributes as the word made flesh. In his greeting with Nathaniel. Are you with Nathaniel yet? Do you stand with Nathaniel? Do you declare him to be the son of God, the king of Israel? And now he's going to tell us even more concerning who he is. Now Jesus will go on to elaborate upon this incredible thing, this promise that he makes. Verse 51, and he that is Jesus said to him, Nathaniel, actually speaking to all of them, truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What about that? That is a remarkable statement. It's very beautiful. Almost poetic. Somewhat enigmatic. It's mysterious. Very beautiful. Very powerful. It's one of the most profound things that Jesus says in all the four Gospels. Now here in introducing this promise... We find Jesus for the first time in John's gospel saying what? Using what? The double Aramaic. Amen, amen. Which probably many uh, scholars believe that they would have been pronouncing amen, amen. Variously translated in English translations, oh my goodness, from the time of Wycliffe's translation, Tyndall's, the King James, on to our day. Variously translated as verily, verily, truly, truly. Or even uh, in some more recent English translations, in truth, in very truth. They're all good translations. They're all accurate translations. What about this Amen, Amen? Let me pick that apart for you and tell you exactly what Jesus is saying when he uses that preface to his statements, when he uses that expression, because it's very important, it's very profound. And he's saying several very important things about himself. And the things that he will declare, the things that he will proclaim. 
Another one of the reasons why I want to explain what he really means by using this amen, amen, is because Jesus will use this expression, amen, amen, 25 times in this gospel. So we should understand exactly what he's saying when he uses this expression. Now, amen, amen, or amen, amen, uh, the original Hebrew word for amen or amen, it derives from a root word that means absolute truth. Certain truth, solemn truth, steadfast truth. Amen was oftentimes used in the first century as a solemn confirmation of truth. And we as Christians, we as believers, we as a new covenant people of God, use amen as well as a solemn confirmation of absolute truth. Now, interestingly... In the first century A.D., uh, Amen was often placed at the end of a statement. Jesus is completely changing that all around, doesn't he? Jesus turns it all around by using the Amen and a double Amen at the beginning of statements that he makes. It's a type of preface to something that he's going to say. And again, he will do that 25 times in this gospel. So at the very least, at face value... When Jesus uses this expression, he's saying, I am a, listen up. What I'm going to tell you is of paramount importance. I'm about, to pro, I'm about to proclaim to you, teach you, tell you, inform you of a profound, certain, absolute truth. Now, by the way, Amen was being used at the end of prayers at this time in the first century, just exactly as we do now. You'll notice, perhaps you've noticed before, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is recorded as using only one Amen to preface his statements. Should that rattle you? No. It shouldn't worry you. It shouldn't trouble you at all. There's no contradiction here. Jesus simply did both. That's all. Many of these things that Jesus said that taught his parables and his sermons, he didn't just give that sermon or that message or that teaching once. Jesus was itinerant, peripatetic. He moved around all over the Roman provinces of Palestine preaching and teaching. So he gave these teachings, these parables, these sermons more than one time. Sometimes he used one amen, at other times two amens, and at other times he used a double amen for even more important truth statements. It's interesting, the double amen uh, to preface or to give a confirmation to a truth statement, you do find that in the Old Testament. I'll give you a few examples. We don't have to go there, but Numbers 5.22, Nehemiah 8.6, Psalm 41.13, Psalm 72.19, Psalm 89.52, where this is used. And some Bible scholars believe, and I believe with them they are correct, they rightly believe, Jesus is saying several things. He is saying, I'm about to tell you an absolute, solemn, profound truth. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. He's also saying this. We also believe that the, the double amen, when Jesus uses this, he's letting us know that the following statement he is about to make, this solemn truth statement, is an authentic truth. As in, these are the authentic words of the Messiah. These are the authentic words of the Christ. These are the authentic words, authentic words, pardon me, of the Son of God. Therefore, they are absolute truth. Others believe, rightly so, that the double amen is an implied statement of absolute authority. This is very important. This is very significant. Many suggest that this double amen is Jesus saying, I am speaking with absolute authority as I am speaking with absolute authenticity and absolute truth. Dare we say he speaks with transcendent power and authority. 
the power and authority of his words and his truth statements. Dare we say divine authority. Many theologians believe that when Jesus says, Amen, Amen, I say to you, he is saying exactly the same thing as what the prophets said in the Old Testament. Thus says the Lord. The prophets received their words from Yahweh the Lord, and they gave his words to the people. When Jesus is saying, Amen, Amen, I say to you in absolute authenticity, power and authority and absolute truth, he is saying, thus says the Lord. When I speak to you, the Lord is speaking to you. My words are the words of the Lord. How about that? For the preface to a statement. He is giving the words of God to human beings, and it makes absolutely perfect sense if you remember the truth of the prologue. For according to the truth of the prologue, Jesus is who and what? The very word of God made flesh. So, of course, his words are authentic, absolute truth, and bear divine authority. And we should remember this every single time we hear Jesus say, Amen, Amen, I say to you in this gospel. Now, first of all, in this verse, what Jesus says in verse 51, you have to understand that you here is plural. It's not singular. He's no longer speaking to just Nathaniel. He's speaking to the other apostles. Jesus answered and said to him, you could just as well translate that Jesus answered and said, because I said to you plural. No, 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 no I'm sorry. Verse 51. And he said to him or said to them, pardon me. We're in verse 51. And Jesus said to him, or said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, plural, you, plural, shall see the heavens open, and the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. So Jesus is speaking now, not only to Nathaniel, but to all of them, all the disciples who are, who are present. This promise is to all of him, and I believe to all of his followers. Many theologians throughout the centuries have believed, and I think they are correct. To an appreciable degree, that what Jesus is about to say, this magnificent promise that he makes to Nathaniel and the others, by extension, he is making this to all of his followers, to all who will receive life in his name, to all who will in time become his disciples. So he's speaking to Nathaniel, yes, but to the others as well. Now, what he says here is again, that's a remarkable thing to say. That's a remarkable thing to promise somebody. Who can guarantee this? Who can promise this? Who can open the heavens but God Almighty Himself? Who do the holy angels ascend or descend upon? By the way, that's a poetic expression for saying, the angels of God paying court to the high king of heaven. The holy angels surrounding and attending to the king. The Lord of heaven Himself. Who can promise this? Who can open the heavens but God himself? What does humanity want? Humanity wants to get to heaven, but humanity wants to get there humanity's way. Remember the Tower of Babel, which is real space, real time history, by the way. It's not myth. It's not legend. It's not a metaphor. These people wanted to build a physical structure in which they could conquer heaven, take heaven their way. And what, of course, it was a complete failure because the high king of heaven judged them for their arrogance and their presumption, and humanity was scattered over the face of the earth. Ever since that time to this, humanity has been trying to conquer heaven, humanity's way, and nothing doing. It is impossible, utterly and totally impossible, for humanity to achieve heaven without God's permission and God's way, and God's plan, 
And yet Jesus is saying, I'm promising you here and now, by way of me, some mysterious way, you will see heaven. You will see the heavens opened. Whether you're aware of it or not, the deepest craving and need in the depths of your soul is to see heavens open and to be restored to the Creator, Redeemer, God. But His way, not your way. Humanity isn't God. God is God. And He graciously permits and will permit heaven to be opened and to admit those upon whom He showers His mercy and His grace. Jesus' mission. The reason why the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. It's, a, <laughs> it's an astounding thing. So, what is he saying? What does this mean? What's this really, really all about? It's quite remarkable. Well, do you know what he's saying? Do you know what he's really talking about? To understand it fully and completely, you have to know your Old Testament. You have to go back to the Old Testament. Jesus is referring to and drawing from the Old Testament. This proves my point that I've made many, many times before. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a message and a story that is so magnificent and so wonderful. It takes both testaments to tell. It's all about him. It is his story, his person, his purpose, his mission. The redemptive mission of the Word made flesh, God the Son, to restore paradise lost. And to restore lost humanity to the creator, redeemer God, the high king of heaven. To make the way to heaven open wide. So, what's this important event? What's this incident in the Old Testament that Jesus is referring to? Well, if you know the book of Genesis well, you'll recognize that he's quoting from the, an incident, an event, important one, from the life of Jacob, the patriarch Jacob, found in Genesis 28. And this is the incident which we traditionally call the vision of Jacob's ladder. Um, actually, we should probably translate the Hebrew word that's used there as staircase or stairway. No insult to the older translations, as wonderful and dear as they are. But the word uh, sulam is the word in Genesis 28 that uh, in older translations was translated as a ladder. But actually, we believe Tsulam should be translated as a staircase, as a stairway, which was very similar to what palaces or temples, how they were constructed and built in Jacob's day. So this vision is giving some, Jacob something to look at that he would recognize. But he's seeing the real way to heaven, the real way to reach the real God when he has this dream, when he has this vision. So... Jesus is deliberately drawing upon this incident, and he's going to compare it to himself. He's, he's saying to these men, in order to understand what I'm promising you, I have to take you back to Jacob. I have to take you back to the Old Testament. Yes, that's right. It's about me. The Old Testament is about me. Jacob's vision is actually about the Messiah, and the Messiah has arrived. So he alludes to it. Therefore, we should examine Jacob's vision in Genesis 28. So let's go there. And I will try to, in a timely fashion, encapsulate what Jacob's vision is about there. Genesis 28. Of course, you know, I hope you know, the story of Jacob. He's quite a rascal. He swindled his brother out of his inheritance, his birthright, and his brother threatens to kill him. So he's on the run. He's on the lamb. And God will graciously visit this man and tell him that even though you don't deserve it, I'm going to use you. Yes, even you. 
I have plans for all of this family. And through this family, the world will be blessed. What's that a reference to? The coming of the Messiah. It will be through the Jewish people, Jacob's descendants. So let me pick apart especially the vision and what it means. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there. Because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he had a dream. He is having something of a dream, a supernatural vision in which God will reveal himself to Jacob, reveal himself to this man. And behold, a sulam, a ladder or a staircase, a stairway was set on the earth with its top reaching to the heaven. Human beings could not accomplish that stairway to heaven. In the earlier chapters of Genesis, God is saying, I am the one and the only one who establishes a way from earth to my palace, to my kingdom, to my personal presence, to heaven. God does that by way of a staircase that he made, that he created. So here's the good news. God is saying that he is establishing, he will establish a staircase from earth to heaven. He will provide a way for human beings to reach and attain heaven. Good news, but it'll be his way. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. This staircase, folks, this is again a poetic way of saying that the spirit beings in eternity in that place outside of time and space as we know it, the personal presence of God, these are his courtiers. These are his attendants. They're surrounding him. They're moving about him. They're paying court to the high king of heaven. They're obeying his commands. They're attending upon him. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, now this is very interesting. Let me take you back to the original Hebrew here. I do agree with Hebrew scholars who believe we should not translate this as, and behold, the Lord stood above it, as in the Lord stood above the staircase. I think something, oh Lord help us, I think something magnificent and far more profound and meaningful is taking place here. I agree with those Hebrew scholars who believe we should translate it this way. And behold, the Lord stood above him. Or the Lord stood by him. I think the original Hebrew is suggesting that God made this staircase from earth to heaven. And that God walked down that staircase to earth. And he was standing right there by and above Jacob talking to him. God not only makes a way from earth to heaven. God comes down from heaven and to earth to graciously meet with people who do not deserve this gracious presence of God. And he stands right over them and personally speaks to them. And offers them gracious promises. The Lord, Yahweh, stood above him and said, I am Yahweh, I am the I am. And this was known to the patriarchs, not the whole Jewish people, not the world. His name, the I am, will only be revealed to the Jewish people at large in the world, at large in the Exodus. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Promises to the Jewish people to claim the promised land, to claim Canaan. And through their line, through their presence in that land, the promised land, will come the greatest promise of all. The arrival of God in the flesh to offer redemption, not only to the Jewish people, but to the world at large. 
Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west, to the east, to the north, and to the south. And here is what the vision to the ladder to heaven is really all about. Here's the heart and the core of it. In you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What is he referring to here? He's referring to the Messiah, to the arrival of the Christ, the Word made flesh. So at the heart and core of these promises to Jacob, at the heart and core to Jacob's vision of God and the stairway to heaven is the Messiah. The Word made flesh and his arrival in Palestine, in the future, by a divine plan. And behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. In other words, I will preserve you and I will preserve my plan. And what I promise, I will keep my promise. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid. Actually, the word is petrified, terrified. That's, the, that's what happens to all sinful human beings when they're placed somewhere in the proximity of the holy, the transcendently holy God. He said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than Beit El, B-E-T-H-E-L, pronounced Beit, Beit El. Beit is the Hebrew word for house. El from Elohim, God. Beit El, the house of God. I've seen the very house of God, the opening to the other world. And he stepped into it to me, to talk to me, a guy who's on the lamb for his life from his brother. This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I've looked into the other world from this place. So Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone that... How, how comfortable was that night's sleep? I don't know. A rock, literally, for your head. It's also a symbol for... A living symbol for the dire straits that this guy's in. He put this rock under his head and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil consecrated on his top. And he gave the name of that place Beit El. The house of God. Now, back to Jesus' words here in the Gospel of John. Please stay with me. Please put this together. And I think some of you are already. I'm seeing some smiles, some heads nodding. That proverbial light bulb is already going off as to how Jesus is using this. Why he's referring to this. Why he's alluding to this. Why he says Jacob's vision is about him. And what he's come to do. And what he has promised. Jacob's ladder, or stairway to heaven vision. It finds its ultimate fulfillment in the Christ. In the Messiah. In the Word made flesh. Now Jacob's vision was a very real event in real space, real time history. It was tremendously meaningful to Jacob in his lifetime and to his descendants and to the old covenant people in that era of history. But Jesus is saying its ultimate meaning and fulfillment is about me. Through Jacob, the information was given to him in this vision that through him, through his descendants, through this promise, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the arrival of the Messiah through the Jewish people who will perform the work of redemption. That's not only for the Jewish people, but for ethnicities from the entire world over. All of humanity. The ultimate meaning of Jacob's vision is found in Christ. That's why Jesus is alluding to it and referring to it. Jacob's vision is about him. The arrival of the Messiah in time. Who he is, what he will be, what he will do. 
You see, Jacob saw heaven opened. Jacob saw a way from earth to heaven, a way to come to God, to heaven. Jacob saw the Lord, the Lord come down to him graciously and purposely speak to him and offer him a promise. Do you see? Are you putting it together? Do you see what Jesus is saying to his disciples in time to all of his disciples, to all who will follow him and receive life in his name? He is saying you will see far greater things than what Jacob saw, because what Jacob saw was all about me. You will see and encounter what Jacob's vision looked forward to. What it all pointed to. Jacob saw heaven opened, a way to heaven opened. He had a vision of God. You will see the same and greater yet. You will see the ultimate way to heaven opened. You really will personally see God after the way of heaven is open to you. Jacob saw a way from earth to heaven. You will see the best and surest and final way provided from earth to heaven. Jacob saw God. To a degree, as much as God would permit that. Jacob saw God, God coming to him, God speaking with him. Jesus is saying, you too will see God. You will see God coming. You are seeing God arrive. You're looking at me, Jesus is saying. That is God arriving. That is God stepping down out of heaven to earth. That is God arriving to speak to you and provide a way to heaven for you and to give wonderful promises to you. That's what Jesus is saying here in this verse. Jesus is saying to them, you are now seeing and will see in me the ultimate meaning and promise of Jacob's vision. Jesus is saying, I am that ladder. I am that stairway. I am that staircase. I am my person. I am that bridge to heaven. I am the only true way to heaven provided by God. I am the true final and ultimate way to heaven provided by God. And I am the Lord who came down to talk with Jacob. And now I am the Lord who has come down to speak to you. Just as the vision is promised. I am the Lord who came down to speak with you and give you hope and a promise to be the way of heaven for you. I am Jacob's vision and I have arrived as promised by plan as prophesied. I am the final and greatest bait L of all. My body is the ultimate house of God where God meets with his people. Wherever I walk, wherever I teach, wherever I am, that place is bait L, the house of God where God meets to speak to his people and to humanity. That's what he's saying here in this verse. It's as deep as it's profound. My goodness, is anything you'll ever hear in the New Testament. Now what Jesus says concerning the angels of God and ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I crave your patience for just a short time more. You think that's incredible? He goes even further. He refers to himself as the Son of Man from the Old Testament. One of the most magnificent prophecies ever given in the Old Testament. One of the most magnificent prophecies of one of our dearly loved prophets, the prophet Daniel. Well, in Jacob's vision, first of all, first things first. In Jacob's vision, the angels are descending and ascending on that staircase. This is what Jesus says. The angels are ascending and descending on the Son of Man. When Jesus says the angels of God are ascending and descending on the Son of Man, he means that he is the Son of Man and he himself is the stairway, 
is the staircase to heaven. Now, when he says, you will see the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, in Jacob's vision, the angels were ascending and descending on God, attending on God. But here he says they're ascending and descending on or about this Son of Man, which means what? Use your brains, use your logic. He's saying the Son of Man is God, if the angels are attending upon him. So now this Son of Man, what does Jesus mean by the Son of Man? Well, all of you probably fully well know by now what Jesus means by Son of Man. Yes, he is referring to himself whenever he says Son of Man, mysteriously. The angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man are angels who serve and attend upon this Son of Man who must be God, must be divine. And yes, Jesus is saying that he is this Son of Man. As a matter of fact, this is one of, well, this is Jesus' favorite self-designation. It's his favorite title. It's his favorite way to refer to himself. Jesus in the four Gospels will call himself, refer to himself as Son of Man over 80 times. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So since he calls himself Son of Man 80 times, don't you think it's worth the trouble to find out what he means? What he's really saying? This is what he means. Jesus is saying that when he is referring to himself as Son of Man, he does not mean that he is an ordinary, mere mortal flesh and blood human being or Son of Man as we are. Now, sometimes in the Old Testament you will find a mere mortal flesh and blood human being being referred to as a son of man. When God speaks to Ezekiel, for example, he says, son of man, write this down. Son of man, pay attention. Son of man, look here. I have something to say to you, to give to the nation of Israel. That's not the son of man that Jesus is referring to. He is saying, I am a son of man. I am the son of Mary. I am a real human being. The word became flesh. Remember from the prologue? This is the true humanity and the true deity of Jesus. The two natures of the one person of the God-man. Jesus the Christ, the Word made flesh. The second person of the triune Godhead. So yes, he is saying, I am a human being. But he's not just a human being. A mere mortal flesh and blood human being. Or a mere son of man as you and I are. He is a son of man who is perfectly human and yet he is divine. He is transcendent. He is deity. That's what he's saying. Jesus is saying that he is the wonderful, majestic, mysterious son of man who is prophesied by the prophet Daniel centuries before Jesus' birth. This is frankly, for all of those wonderful incidences in the book of Daniel, my favorite passage, I think, in the entire book of Daniel is chapter 7. It's one of my favorite passages in the entire Old Testament and the entire Bible. Daniel 7, 13, and 14. A son of man who is human... And yet, according to the vision, he must be God. He must be divine. He is the Messiah. This is Daniel's prophecy of the Messiah. Let's go there quickly. Well, you can if you want to join me there, but I'm going to turn to Daniel 7. Two short verses, but two of the most wonderful verses in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... Who comes on the clouds of heaven? God, the Almighty, Yahweh, the great I Am. He and He alone. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a or the Son of Man was coming. He's saying that this Son of Man is divine. This Son of Man has divine attributes. He travels in the clouds of heaven.
literally or metaphorically. This must be a vision of God. And yes, this is a son of man. This is a human who is God. A human who is also divine, who travels in the clouds of heaven. You see what Daniel is telling us here? He is giving us the deity of Jesus, but he's also giving us the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity. The Son of Man, who is God the Son, will be presented before who? The Ancient of Days, God the Father. The first person of the Trinity. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like this Son of Man was coming. Divine, human divine. How can that be? What's this all about? And he came up to the Ancient of Days, God Almighty the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, this divine Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, all nations, that men of every language might serve him. All of humanity will come to serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. Folks, who can have an everlasting dominion? No mere mortal flesh and blood human being. Everlasting cosmic dominion belongs to God and God alone. This is the deity of the Son of Man and this authority to rule the cosmos, granted to him by God the Father, the Ancient of Days. This is who Jesus says he is. It's astounding. His dominion, the Son of Man's dominion, is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. When Jesus is saying He is the Son of Man, He is saying, I am Daniel, Son of Man. Arrived. According to plan. As prophesied. And so again, Jesus is pointing us to the Old Testament. It's all about him. That's his story as well. He points to what Daniel wrote concerning the Messiah, who is this divine son of man. So Nathaniel, the other disciples, and so to us, Jesus is saying that he is, yes, the son of God, the Messiah, the king of Israel, just as Nathaniel has said, but he's more than that. He's more than that. To Nathaniel, to the disciples, to those who will come to believe in him, they will all see him as well as the ultimate way, the ultimate ladder, the ultimate bridge and staircase to heaven. He himself is the one and only true and final and ultimate way to God, to heaven. He is also God come down from heaven. He was the God who came down to speak to Jacob. He is the God who has come down to speak again. With humanity. The ultimate revelation of God to humanity. He is also more than that. He is also the divine human son of man. Of faithful old Daniel's prophecy. Who rules and will rule all of this world and all of the cosmos. And he will rule over every created thing and every created being. On behalf of the ancient of days. Yahweh, God Almighty, the Father. This is who Jesus really is. This is what he has come to do. This is what he has come to accomplish. And this is what he promises to all who will put their belief, their faith, and their trust in him. In quick conclusion, I agree with the theologians who for centuries past believed that Jesus is promising us something which is ultimately the future as well. Many believe that Jesus is also promising Nathaniel, the other disciples, and us, all followers of Christ, what has traditionally been referred to as the beatific vision, the vision beautiful, where at last and finally 
humanity will be able to see God. This is the vision that, if memory serves me correct, the Apostle John promises us. The author of this gospel promises us the beatific vision in the last chapters of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21 and 22, and his redeemed people in the new heaven and new earth. The heavens open, and earth and heaven joined once and for all at last, never to be separated again. They what? They shall see God in his personal presence with no barriers in between anymore whatsoever. That's what Jesus is promising here in verse 51 as well. If you all put your faith, your trust, your belief in me, you will behold the high King of heaven, Father, Son, and Spirit in his beauty. This is the reason why we were created and redeemed in the first place. See, it was worth spending a little more time with Nathaniel and Jesus in these two verses. These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the King of Kings. That you may believe that He is the way to heaven. That He is the way to see the heavens opened. And therefore, by believing... You may have life in his name and that you may obtain heaven and that you may see the face of God. Sovereign Lord God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this magnificent promise given to Nathaniel, given to your first apostles and given promise to all of those who will become your disciples. And follow the Messiah, the word made flesh, and receive life in his name. Please help this message to go out this community, this country, and the world over. That all who see and hear, all who receive this truth, proclaim to them. That your spirit will do his work upon their mind and their heart. And they will be drawn to believe in him. The Messiah, the word made flesh, our Lord Jesus. And obtain life everlasting in his name.